Good evening and welcome to Blindspot. Tonight on the program, we are proud to present Micro Landscapes, featuring the talents of Richard Holland, Anna Clark, Peter Rosenblum, Eric Humphrey, Brian Taylor, Philip Von Zweck, and myself. I'm John Wenzel. Each week, Blindspot creates a unique live radio experience for you, the listeners. For more information about the show and those that help produce each week, please visit our website at stopgostop.com slash blindspot. There, you will find descriptions of past and future shows, as well as pictures and mp3s. Now, broadcasting live, live from the campus of Loyola University, you're listening to WLUW listener-supported community radio, 88.7 Chicago. Blindspot presents an evening of landscapes. When one thinks of landscapes, one might think of grand vistas that stretch from one side of the horizon to the other, the kind of scene that takes your breath away. Tonight's program, Microlandscapes, is looking at a concept of landscapes uh, from a more personal viewpoint. We begin this evening's journey uh, in this very room that we broadcast from tonight. I'm sitting at a, a board, a standard radio board with several, with one, two, three, four, about twelve. Uh, different sliders. They're blue in shape. E There's two but buttons on each. Red means that it's on the air. Yellow means it's not. In front, there are six VU meters that go up and down with my voice. Audition, left and right. Program, left and right. As well as mono out. The board itself is kind of a battleship gray, highlighted with numbers in white, 1 through 12. Each uh, lever has a number, infinity at the bottom, plus 15 at the top. To the left of me, there are three CD players, two Sony and one Denton only one of which seems to be working tonight. The board itself is outlined with wood, a blonde, probably popular, poplar. In front of me, on pieces of paper taped to glass, are things that are to be said by the shift each during each shift as well as the legal ID. In front of me, slightly up, is a clock reading 10.06. The second hands, the seconds, are blinking. To the right of that is a calendar, a free calendar given to the station by a package delivery service. To the right of me is a CDR burner, 
as well as a delay dump that is used when taking live phone calls. A tape deck is right above that. Above that is the EAS warning. When something happens in the world, a little ticket will spurt out from it, and it is to be read live to air. About two feet above from me is a VCR used to both tape and play programs. To the right of me, kind of perpendicular to the board, are two turntables. On top of the turntable on the left is a computer playing in the background of when I talk. Behind me are two windows looking out to the Loyola campus. The shades are mostly up. There is a light with three light bulbs shining directly into my eyes as I look at them. There are rock and roll posters hanging on the wall all about from shows from shows past at a variety of places around the Chicago area. There's a brown trash can filled with the weekend's debris from the various DJ hosts. The carpet is an industrial, mostly gray and brown carpet with black specks in it. I'm assuming it's this way so that dirt is easily covered. There are some rubber bands around on the floor, various bits of paper and dust. To the left uh, at about, oh, probably seven o'clock from my position, there are racks of CDs in a numbered order that is unknown to me. There are WLUW 88.7 pieces of paper taped to the cement walls, the yellow cement walls. The ceiling is that of an office. There's fluorescent lighting. The seat that I sit in is maroon and tilt back very easily.
probably because my landlord decided that in an effort to save himself some money uh, and to cause us lots of suffering, it was a good idea to put a, uh, a furnace upstairs. So uh, on, my, on my birthday, he called me up. Uh, he didn't know it was my birthday um, because he doesn't actually care about us as human beings. And he told me that uh, we had to, that I had to move out all of my stuff out of my studio so that he could send work people in to uh, rip up the floor. And this leads me to think about how uh, anytime somebody says they've got some good news and they've got some bad news, invariably it means they've got some bad news and then they've got some really, really bad news. So the landscape of the studio had to have a massive shift uh, as I moved hundreds and hundreds of records and books and boxes full of comic books uh, so that so that workmen could come in with crowbars and hammers and, and take up the most basic part of the landscape, which was the floor itself. And it took them uh, about a week and a half to do this, so I got to spend most of no, a good chunk of November without heat, which was no fun. And, uh, and all of the, the sort of good news portion was that we got to pay all this extra money. The good postscript to this is now that I'm finally starting to move back in, they did such a bad job with the wiring that we had an electrical fire yesterday, and now and we got to spend the weekend without heat, which has since been sort of uh, temporarily wired by uh, a very mediocre electrician with suggestions from me, so that now our heater uh, runs off of a big, dirty orange extension cord that snakes through my apartment and plugs into my kitchen behind the stove. And, uh, and that is now the sort of electrical source for the heat. So there's this, you know, I mean, in terms of personal landscape, my studio is like the gravitational center. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's really been difficult to have that sort of thrown into upheaval and then, you know, think that things are starting to slowly slip back into normality, put my tools back in place, put some of the shelves back, start to put the books and records back on the shelves. Um, hang the tools up on the pegboard, you know, to get a sense of normality. And now, because we had this electrical fire, they're going to come in with an electrician tomorrow who is going to probably rip up the floor again because they've got to get to that wiring. So, uh, well, not a traditional landscape, this certainly has been an evolving uh, process of my personal uh, landscape and surroundings sort of in this state of, of constant tumult and uh, and it's been particularly uh, difficult and stressful. So uh, I, I, I long for the time where, you know, the household landscape sort of revolves, uh, resolves back to a certain degree of normality and calm because the shifting nature of it definitely causes me lots of anxiety. It's one of those situations where you don't really appreciate what you've got until it's been thrown into upheaval. Uh, I mean, it's like it's like moving, but a sort of a constant state of moving. I mean, it's not as painful as moving in that I don't have to drag all of my stuff outside uh, and box it all up. But it's 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 in some ways even more disturbing because it's like it's sort of the band-aid versus the scrape model, right? Would you rather have a quick, sharp pain with the band-aid being ripped off, or would you rather have an extensive scrape? Um, so, you know, it's it's really it's uh, it's been taxing.
When I think of landscape in Adam Bede, or uh, even in Adam Bede as a whole, what comes to mind is the pastoral and the bucolic, um, the absolutely perfect English countryside, full of pastures and fields and meadows, and everything is green and lush. It's the kind of nature that uh, wouldn't exactly be awe-inspiring, but that is comfortably beautiful. When you consider this kind of rural perfection in terms of the actual plot of the story, though, is really this marked disparity, because when you boil the story down, what you get is this tale of lust and infanticide. Um, but what in the end gives the reader an impression, um, not of a salacious murder tale, but of peaceful country life, 
is just this exhaustive description of the landscape, a description that in its detail and in its comprehensiveness um, really seems to mitigate the, the tragedy and estrangement that is at the heart of the action. I'll read a brief passage um, just so you can get an idea of the kind of detail that I'm talking about. The traveler began to mount the gentle slope leading to its pleasant uplands, and now, from his station near the green, he had before him in one view nearly all the other typical features of this pleasant land. High up against the horizon were the huge, conical masses of hill, as giant mounds intended to fortify this region of corn and grass against the keen and hungry winds of the north, not distant enough to be clothed in purple mystery but with somber greenish sides visibly speckled with sheep, whose, most, whose motion was only revealed by memory, not detected by sight. Wooed from day to day by the changing hours, but responding with no change in themselves, left forever grim and sullen after the flush of the morning, the winged gleams of the April noon day, the parting crimson glory of the ripening summer sun. So here we have this dense, dense description. Um, the textual landscape, if you will, of the page is this solid block of paragraph full of these adjective-laden uh, multi-clause sentences. But what we also have here is this framing device. Um, the narrator isn't telling the reader directly what the landscape looks like, but the description is being mediated through the figure of the traveler. So we see what he sees. So the function of this framing device is twofold. It heightens the sense of insularity and isolation to the town of Hayslope, but it's also relevant to the novel's temporal setting. The action in the book takes place in 1799, but the book was written nearly six years after that date. Um, the landscape doesn't contain the traces of encroaching industrialism that would have been present when George Eliot, um, who is the author, was writing the book. Uh, instead, within this frame, um, there's not just a picture of an idealized English landscape, but a landscape that seems to be all the more perfect because it's being recalled, because it exists in what is fondly thought of as this more simple, perfect past that is now lost. This idealized description seems especially strange when you think of it in terms of the realist project that Elliot is kind of working at in Adam Bede. She says explicitly, in fact, that her goal is to create these more three-dimensional portraits of rural peasant characters. And by giving them full emotional lives, they attain a greater depth. And so it's easier for an educated reader to then empathize with them. They don't just see the peasant people as these simple kind of stupid one-dimensional figures. So when the characters are put in this too-perfect setting, they could be seen as losing some of the sympathy-generating realism. But the novel at times does seem to recognize this disparity, and I'll read a passage in which this quality is especially evident. What a glad world this looks like, as one drives or rides along the valleys and over the hills. I have often thought so, when in foreign countries, when the fields and woods have looked to me like our English Loamshire, I have come on something by the roadside, which has reminded me that I am not in Loamshire, an image of great agony, the agony of the cross. It has stood perhaps by the clustering apple blossoms, or in the broad sunshine by the cornfield, or at a turning by the wood, where a clear brook was gurgling below, 
And surely, if there came a traveler to this world who knew nothing of the story of man's life upon it, this image of agony would seem to him strangely out of place in the midst of this joyous nature. He would not know that hidden behind the apple blossoms or among the golden corn or under the shrouding boughs of heavy wood, there might be a human heart beating heavily with anguish, perhaps a young, blooming girl, not knowing where to turn for refuge from swift advancing shame, understanding no more of this life of ours than a foolish lost lamb, wandering farther and farther in the nightfall on the lonely deep, yet tasting the bitterest of life's bitterness. So there is this kind of symbolism here that just slaps you in the face, but there's also a suggestion of kind of a more subtle import, a suggestion that the text itself is conscious of its own idealization, and perhaps in that self-consciousness contains a critique of the pastoral landscape. I will let Elliot have the final word, though. Um, she chose a somewhat puzzling, but I think revelatory epigraph for her novel. It's an excerpt from a Wordsworth poem called The Excursion. So that you may have clear images before your gladdened eyes of nature's unambitious underwood and flowers that prosper in the shade. And when I speak of such among the flock as swerved or fell, only those shall be singled out upon his lap or error, something more than brotherly forgiveness may attend.
cab. On the on the way there, as we drive down Sawyer and pull onto onto Fullerton going east, we make the bland pleasantries that all married couples make as they go towards their chosen destinations. Whether it's what we've done today or yesterday or the previous week or who's going to meet us at the bar. And that's what verbally we're discussing as we turn onto Western and go north. In my head, I'm thinking about the fact that I have already mapped out the first couple songs that I'm going to be singing at the karaoke bar. Because for me, the key thing that's in, that's important is you need to start strong and establish a real powerful rapport with the audience, if you know what I'm saying. After we've gone past Lawrence and we're in the Lincoln Square area, we turn onto the gradual soft left onto... Lincoln, going into Lincoln Square, and after a minute or two, we pull into our de- to our de- to our destination. As we go into the karaoke bar, I may or may not have to run a- to run across to the Korean bodega across across the street to get a pack of smokes. They're not as bad in outside as they are inside, cost-wise. The first thing I do when I hit the- when I hit the karaoke bar is. Either, A, if friends of mine are already there, I make a beeline for them, not because it's important so much to see my friends or to put my coat down, but they have a book. They have a book of songs. If they're not there, with my coat on, I go to the far side of the bar, all the way in. This is af- after the big, the big fat guy has checked my ID for the 10 millionth time, and he even calls me by name. At any rate, I don't get a, I don't get a beer yet. I go and get one of the stray books. If I can't find a book, then that gets a little dicey, as I might just have to steal one. But that's another story. So I get my first song, and as I've decided, it's Lonely Days by the Bee Gees. So I get that number, I immediately go write it on the list. Then, unfortunately, probably to my, to my wife's chagrin, She's had to find a place to sit, and I go put my coat down, and then get a beer. At that point, once I have a beer and a song in, I look around, see how long the list is. I feel it is a little uncouth to, frankly, put too many songs in the karaoke list with when you haven't even sung one. It's kind of, you know, bad form. So I wait. If there are too many people on the list, though, I get that second song in there. Then, you know, casual small talk as we go through the list, because, you know, sure, I've got my opening number ready, but yet I want to know what's new in the list. I want to know what's the new pop song. Do, do I have it in me to do Jessica Simpson? The answer is probably yes, but that also is a different story. Then the most unpleasant part of the karaoke experience. We wait. We wait as... I try to make small talk, and I usually fail because I have to compulsively look over every song in the book. Because you never know. That version of Space, of Space Cowboy by the Steve, the Steve Miller Band may have been in there all along, and I've just never bothered to look hard enough or to wonder if I had enough gumption to actually sing it. They are calling my number. They're calling my, they're, they're, they're calling my number. I weave through all of, the, all of the people. What I like to do when I get up there is I like... I stand there for a second, I put my hand out with the microphone in my hand, and I look at the audience, and I point at somebody that I don't know. 
I always do it. I always have. I was in a band once. I think it's where it comes from. There are four monitors for me to for me to look for me to look at as I'm on the stage, which is a small two-step stage that if you're not careful, you can bang your you can bang your head and back. I usually look at the second one, which is approximately at 11, 11 o'clock if you're facing forward. I feel this gives the largest range when looking across the audience. You can see pretty much everybody on both sides. You can monitor the door, see anything, and you've got the full floor should you need to jump down in a big moment. Go perhaps on your knees, something like that. Really sell it to the audience. I'm about to sing my first song. I open my mouth. of rooms. 
Chicago. My new friend is Peter. He is nice to me. He feeds me and lets me sit on his lap as I'm sitting now. And I'm quite tired as I was playing with my toys just an hour ago. But he has since sat down on his armchair. So I have laid down on his lap and was snoozing comfortably. Now I have woken up, obviously, as I'm speaking to you. I'm looking around these rooms. I see my cat toys. I see the cat carrier, which he attempted to bring me to the cat doctor, but was unsuccessful. However, I believe we will try again tomorrow. However, I intend on making it very difficult again for him to get me into the cat carrier. I relax, still looking away and breathing very gently. Every now and then I feel the need to yawn and stretch my little jaw muscles. And now I'm resting my chin on Peter's knee and looking towards the door. However, I don't see anything over there towards the door. Now I'm looking over at the bookcase, and now I'm looking at Peter, who is on his phone device. And I just licked my nose. And I shook my head and licked my nose again because I felt a little agitated briefly. Now I'm staring at Peter. And I've just yawned again. I'm still quite tired, having only had 19 hours of sleep today. Normally I require at least 20 hours of sleep every day for for me to maintain my great clarity of mind and focus. My tail is not moving. I've tried to twitch it, but it's not moving. And now I've just stretched my left rear leg and again am looking towards the bookcase and my cat toys and now the bookcase again and now my cat toys. They do amuse me, but only for brief periods of time during the day. The rest of the time, they only remain an object of interest but they do not stimulate me in a toy-like manner. Now I'm somewhat annoyed because Peter is still talking on the phone and I wish peace and quiet so that I may go back to my nap. But um, he's still talking. So I'm looking at him. I'm probably showing a little annoyance. My eyes are getting a little more squinty and now I'm looking off oh I'm getting very tired again oh yes 
My chin is sinking down in my soft, furry chest. And I'm looking off, perhaps contemplating maybe that I will give up his lap and go sleep on the sofa because he's making way too much noise by speaking constantly in this way. I'm also thinking about maybe going into the other room. I just stretched my front legs, maybe getting ready. I might be preparing to go to the other room where I'm pretty sure I won't be able to hear him talking. And then maybe I will do something in his closet that he won't like. Perhaps leave some kind of smelly parcel for him in his closet. But no, I won't do that. I like him, and that would be beneath me. So I believe I will stay here on his lap. It is annoying, but oh, now it is too annoying. And now I'm getting up. I'm stretching, and I've just jumped down onto the carpeted floor, and I am decided I'm going to clean myself a little bit. However, I am looking at my food bowl and my water bowl. I may, I may decide to eat a little more food or have some more water. Although my cat toy does look appealing as well. And now I'm looking over towards the bookcase, the cat carrier, and again back to my food bowl. Now walking towards the kitchen, and yes, I am going to have a little drink of water. So I'll have to stop talking just for a minute while I'm drinking. Yes, mm, yes, it's very good. It's still cold, quite fresh water. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying that quite a bit. And I can hear the television going. I believe it's one of his science fiction programs that he watches where there are lots of creatures that are quite ugly, but he does seem to enjoy watching them nonetheless. I'm now drinking more water, so if you'll excuse me, I'll stop talking again for a few moments. Yes. Yes, the water is quite yummy, quite refreshing and cold. Yes, it is good. And I'm still drinking water. Oh, now, oh, that felt good. I'm shaking my head. I licked my tongue, and now I'm cleaning myself recently. And I'm getting a little itchy behind my right ear, and I'm scratching my right ear. Now I'm looking off towards the other room. He's still talking on the phone. Perhaps I can find a little peace and quiet. Although I decided to explore the cat carrier briefly. And now I'm looking towards my litter box. Perhaps I might avail myself of the relief that I find 
in the litter box. So hot. Who would have thought? It's crazy. And plus, there's. I'm looking around everywhere, and all I'm seeing is this moss. This moss is laying around everywhere. <clears throat> but then, oh, well, then when I put my glasses back on, I see that a lot of this is mainly just rocks. There's this kind of lichen y stuff that's around everywhere, and I'm thinking this is the. This, this, um, this like, greenish greenish-gray stuff the sheep and cattle eat. Um, and it supposedly was the first lichen that was eaten by humans. Of course, you know. Um, but I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that Iceland is real. Um, Iceland is not a myth. It's, a, it's this, a solid portion of the Earth's surface. Um, being alone in Iceland, you are utterly alone indeed in the homeless undisturbed wilderness it sort of feels like this terrible calm I guess um 
And there's this one, I guess the terrible calm could be in this, this, this one memory that, uh, that a friend had told me that something like, he was describing um, things having gotten a quite different appearance all of a sudden. The Yokul itself exploded and precipitated masses of ice, many of which were hurled out to the sea, but the thickest remained on the plain at a short distance from the foot of the mountain. The noise and reports continuing the atmosphere was so completely filled with fire and ashes that day could scarcely be distinguished from night. By reason of the darkness which followed, and which was barely rendered visible by the light of the fire that had broken through five or six cracks in the mountain. In this manner, the parish of Orifa was tormented for three days altogether. But it's not so easy to describe the disaster as it was in reality. The surface of the ground was entirely covered with pumice sand. That was the stuff I was confusing with the moss earlier. And it was impossible to go out into the open air with safety on account of the red-hot stones that fell from the atmosphere. Any who did venture out had to cover their heads with buckets and other such wooden utensils, as could afford some protection at least. And that's some—that's at least all I can remember of what he was talking about. But I guess one of the nice things about Iceland, um, besides that they elected the first female president ever in the world, um, is it's really small and has tons of hot springs. And all of the heating in the capital city is um, is powered by the geothermal hot springs, um, which issue out from the volcanoes in the center. <clears throat> and I guess I guess concerning clothes, maybe you're going. Um, the most essential thing that you need are some big gum boots with smooth soles so they don't get caught in your stirrups. Those riding boots will be ruined and won't keep you dry at all. And at least two pairs of socks should be worn inside these gum boots. And a pair of walking shoes and a pair of slippers shoes will complete your foot gear. And As far as food, for breakfast, if you stay on a farm, this is brought to you in bed. Coffee, bread, and cheese, and small cakes. Coffee, which was drunk all through the day, I must have had about 1,500 cups in just three months, is generally good. And there's this white bread and a brown bread, rock hard but pretty edible, and unleavened rye bread like cake. The ordinary cheese is like a strong Dutch and is really good. There's also this brown sweet cheese, which is Norwegian, and I don't like the cakes so much, so I never ate any of those. But I was right. My throat is much worse, like a lime kiln. I don't know whether this stage is the most unpleasant or the next, when I shall probably cry for about two days. Most disfiguring and embarrassing, and I've only got one handkerchief, and I suppose it is really repenting its sins, which apparently has to do, it has to do about every six months, but I wish it wouldn't. So, 
I caught the nine o'clock bus to Mitzvan, and one waterfall out there is extraordinarily like another. We didn't get to Mitzvan until about three o'clock, and I was hungry and sleepy and cross. And the lake is surrounded by little craters like candle snuffers. Hay was being made everywhere, and the haymakers were using aluminum rakes, which I had never seen before. Afterwards, I lay in the sun watching the hay being made and taking photographs. It's a pity I'm so impatient and careless as any ordinary person could learn all the technique of photography in a week. It's the democratic art. Technical skill is practically eliminated, and the more foolproof cameras become with focusing and exposure gadgets, the better. And artistic quality depends only on the choice of the subject. We started back at about five, more crowded than ever. We stopped to fill up, and I was very annoyed because I was on the wrong side of the bus to Farmer Girl's picture working at the pump, which would have made a beautiful Eisensteinian sort of shot. But I went to eat and then ran into some drunk Norwegian sailors, and an Icelandic acquaintance of theirs passed and greeted one by slapping him on the bottom, which started a furious argument conducted entirely in English, something like this. Why'd you do that? Why shouldn't I? Don't you know it's an insult to slap a man on his arse? No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's an Icelandic custom. No, oh, no, it isn't. Well, how do you know? How do I know? Everybody knows. No, they don't. I tell you, it's an insult to slap a chap's arse. How can you tell me when you don't know about Iceland? If you don't know that, then you're damn uneducated. How should I know that when I, when I know it isn't? Well, be careful next time, Mr. C. Same to you. Sorry, that was kind of a pointless story, but maybe a little bit of, uh, what's the word, local color or something. Um, but anyway, I wish I could describe things well. For a whale in the most beautiful is the most beautiful animal I've ever seen. It combines the fascination of something alive and enormous and gentle with the functional beauties of modern machinery. A 70-ton one was lying on the slipway like a large and very dignified duchess being got ready for the ball by beetles. To see it torn to pieces with steam winches and cranes is enough to make you a vegetarian for life. In the lounge, the wireless was playing, I want to be bad and eat an apple every day. I guess Icelandic folk songs? Um, downstairs, the steward's canary chirped incessantly and the sun was out in the bay, surrounded by buoys and gulls were the semi-submerged bodies of five dead whales, and down the slipway ran a constant stream of blood, staining the water a deep red for a distance of 50 yards. Someone was whistling some sort of tune, and a bell suddenly clanged, and everyone stuck their spades in the carcass and went off for lunch. The body remained alone in the sun, the flesh still steaming a little bit, and it gave someone an extraordinary vision of the cold, controlled ferocity of the human species. And I got back here this afternoon about tea time, and I've been trying to read through my enormous pile of correspondence. I'm enclosing some oddments, which should interest you, the very story which I came across here again here, and used to be my favorite when I was small, and my father used to read to me. If it hadn't been for this story, I don't suppose I should be here now.
And so, concerning the uses of volcanoes, anyway, back to the main subject, surely were it possible for these thoughtless and insensible beings whose minds seem to feel suddenly transported to this burning region and placed within view of the tremendous operations of the vomiting pool. Sight could not but arouse could not but arouse them from their lethargic stupor, and by superinducing habits of serious reflection, might be attended to with the happiest consequences, both to themselves and all within the sphere of their influence. What does this have to do with volcanoes? I'm sorry I read you that. Um, but as far as, well, the capital, I guess, it's unquestionably the worst place to spend the winter in Iceland. The tone of society is the lowest that can well be imagined. And it not only presents a lamentable blank to the view of a religious observer, but is totally devoid of every source of intellectual gratification. And it's commonly reported that the noise and bellowing of those sea bulls and sea cows makes the cows ashore run mad, but none have ever seen any of the supposed animals or notice the bad effects of their bellowing. You have been listening to Blind Spot Micro Landscapes. Featuring the talents of Richard Holland, Anna Clark, Peter Rosenblum, Eric Humphrey, Brian Taylor. The program was engineered by Philip Von Zweck and produced by, by myself. I'm John Wenzel. Each week, Blindspot creates a unique live radio experience. For more information about the show, please visit our website at stopgostop.com slash blind spot there you'll be able to find uh, descriptions of past and future shows pictures as well as mp3s next week on the program stay tuned for what do you want for christmas we'll be taking calls and and we'll be hearing from the community at large to answer that question what do they want for christmas or any other holidays that they wish This is, of course, listener-supported community radio 887-WLUW-Chicago, broadcasting from the campus of Loyola University. This has been Blindspot.